Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend Libby Miller. In this episode, Libby and I discuss the patriarchy in modern-day society, specifically in Utah where Libby grew up. Next, we discuss her move to Denver and the dating scene in the city. From there, we discuss CBD, nicotine, THC, and psychedelics, and their respective relationships to addiction. We then talk about the pros and cons of self-improvement and the impact of products and lifestyles peddled by self-help gurus. Next, Livy and I discuss our relationships with organized religion and our conceptions of God. We end the discussion on the importance of free speech and skepticism of the information distributed by the mainstream media and big tech oligopolies. Outros available for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. Tonight, I am very excited to be here with the incredible Livy Miller. Livy, how are you doing tonight? I am doing really well. It's a, it's a muggy but hot Denver evening, uh, and I'm coming here to really learn more in depth uh, about the journey that you've been on for the past 18 months uh, and just have a conversation. So... So with that, Libby, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you grew up? Cool. So I'm really, really lucky. Uh, I grew up in a small ski town in Utah, uh, Park City, Utah. My parents were uh, ski bums. My mom was doing her master's at the University of Oregon. And a friend said, hey, let's go to this place called Park City uh, for spring break. And that was in 1981. Uh, she never went back to school. And then my dad, after he got out of the Marines, he followed five of his siblings that were there in 1982. And then I came about. So born and raised there. It was amazing. The Olympics, Sundance, everything of that nature. I'm incredibly lucky. And then after school, college ventured out to Denver. Here we are. Done a lot of consulting, hemp, CBD, vape, medical sales, automotive as well. And then most recently I got into one of the most unique fields here in Denver, tech sales. (laughs) That's awesome. So I guess to start with growing up in Park City, I mean, what was that like? Definitely one of my favorite ski towns. We call it God's country or living inside the bubble. And so though the LDS religion is of a minority in Park City going to the University of Utah and then, you know, kind of remembering experiences from growing up, there is uh, very much an underlying culture of, you know, sweet, subservient women that, you know, kind of ripples throughout the whole state. So now at 26, that's something that I've been gaining more of an understanding of now that John Krenkauer's Under the Banner of Heaven uh, Hulu documentary came out. Keep Sweet was another one on Netflix. So it was somewhat of a realization for myself, not coming from a Mormon family, not being Mormon myself. So yeah, ski towns in Utah. <laughs> Did you feel that that culture of female subservience extended into the non-Mormon community in Utah? Growing up, I would have adamantly said no. But now being able to look back on it with the personality I have and with who I am, 
I oftentimes felt too much. Too much. Yeah. So, you know, too much of an opinion, uh, too loud, uh, too funny. You know, I wasn't just smiling and laughing uh, and looking pretty at a table next to uh, the men who were supposed to drive us forward in whatever way that would be. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think for me as well, you know, obviously I, I grew up in Cincinnati, not a big Mormon community or anything like that. But I think just being able to take a little bit more of a uh, independent perspective on how our culture has developed and the way that women are treated, it, it, it has become clearer and clearer to me that the patriarchy that modern civilization was founded on is still very much intact and has simply, I think, just transformed with the development of human society, but it certainly hasn't gone away anywhere near the extent that I would have liked hope it would have by 2020. And, you know, you're, you're segueing into, you know, a, a very interesting topic that contains multitudes on multitudes. Uh, whereas in Utah, women being the caretakers, being subservient, being sweet, not sharing too much as to, you know, ruffle any feathers. That's something that is celebrated inherently. Whereas as you bring up, you know, maybe it's in Ohio or anywhere, you know, there is a bit of patriarchy. And to your point, I disagree on that. I wouldn't say that women are equal in a sense, but I think as though if you work hard enough and you pave your own way, you're going to do just fine uh, as a woman. At my last company, I had to scratch and crawl uh, in order to make my voice or my opinion or my research uh, heard. Whereas, you know, I would always say all the guys would just sit in a boardroom, shoot the shit and decide what they liked that day. You know, starting my career in automotive, there was less sexism there uh, than in other areas that I have worked in. So yes, I'm against any patriarchy, but I also think patriarchy exists because men will surround themselves with other men Mm -hmm. that have the same thinking to stay within their own bubble, if you will. And ultimately within business, you know, similar to what Abraham Lincoln did in filling his cabinet with a bunch of people that hated him. If you don't have a business model where you're surrounding yourself and hiring people from all different walks of life, all different situations, then ultimately you're not going to be diverse enough in knowledge to be able to succeed at a high level. And that's, I guess, in a long-winded way, why, yes, I agree that patriarchy exists in some way, but I don't think that women should claim victimhood to it. Totally. I think that's a great point. And, And I also love what you bring up about just the ability of us to fall victim to groupthink, regardless of, you know, if it's men and women or just, you know, a group of executives who have always done things a certain way. And so they think that that's the way that it's always got to be. Well, and it's, it rocks you to your core to be challenged on an idea. That's why I'm such a free speech advocate. John Stuart Mills was, um, he hung out with the founding fathers. He was, I think so. Someone will probably listen and be like, no, wrong time period. But Anyways, he was an advocate for free speech. He calls it uh, the marketplace of ideas. And, you know, if shitty ideas aren't brought to the table, um, then better ideas won't exist. So 
back to that boardroom of everyone agreeing and thinking everything that everyone doing is cool. Uh, that's ultimately where a business fails. That's ultimately where friendships or relationships fail. Uh, and that's where we become stagnant as humans. Uh, if your ideas aren't challenged, then how are you ultimately going to grow or find different perspective? Yep, absolutely. So taking a, a step back to your move to Denver, when did you decide to do that? And you know, what were some of the driving motivations behind that? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, I, had, I had graduated early from the University of Utah, six months early, and I worked for then the largest uh, private company in Utah, Larry H. Miller. They own the Utah Jazz, 60 car dealerships, a whole litany of things. Uh, and I worked for um, Sylvia Potempa, who was my great, 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 whatever, grand big in our sorority. Um, and that job really set uh, the tone for the rest of my career, let's say the last five years. So I was going to stay there. I didn't have any social life anymore in Utah, but I was so fixated and doing well at this job uh, that I decided, you know, I'll just stay in Utah, keep my chin down. And then from Park City, I was one of the only ones who went to school in state. And just by kind of happen chance, uh, randomly, most of my friend group ended up here in Denver. And I kind of was sitting there one night. I was living at home commuting 40 minutes to work every day. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm 22. This is my first job out of college. What was I making like 43 grand a year or something? Why would I not move, you know, and find that independence, no matter where you're from, leaving your home state, your hometown, uh, the town where you went to college, I think is very important, at least in my life experiences, maybe yours. How do you feel on that? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, I've probably moved more than I would have liked to. And, you know, I've been in Denver now for about five and a half years, which has been great. It's definitely opened my eyes. I've gotten to live in some of the, you know, some really great places like New York and San Francisco. And I think the biggest challenge for me uh, through a lot of those moves has been making new friend groups and, you know, close friends, right? Like I'm generally a pretty sociable person. So finding friends has never necessarily been hard, but but I think finding friends and finding close friends that you can really, you know, fully be yourself with and open up with and that you connect with on a lot of different levels. I, I found that to be a little bit of uh, a rarer kind of more challenging thing throughout those moves. Well, I think especially for men, whenever I meet a guy that isn't in my nuclear friend group, whether it's a date, you know, or just a new guy that I'm around and they've moved here recently, they're not from here. Maybe I, will always ask them about their friendships because male friendships, it's fascinating to me. Whereas women, if they move to a you know new city, we're a lot more open to, oh, I have uh, Orange Theory with this girl. We're going to get coffee. Or I met another girl when I was with another guy. Now we're friends. Whereas for guys, it's so much more different than that. Mm -hmm. So though I am not a man understanding in that position, I'm, I'm a, a very hyper observer of that and how men navigate adulthood and, you know, seek out those friendships or if they kind of just fall on their lap somehow and they hang out with the same people until they get married or do whatever they want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And you mentioned dating and, you know, one of the, one of the uh, jokes about Denver for single women is that the odds are good, but the goods are odd. And I'm curious if you found that to be your experience or not so much. I have never heard that, but um, <laughs> yes. I, should we go get tattoos tonight? You can take me. I'll get that tattooed. 
the Denver dating scene is tough. I know I when something doesn't work out with a guy, you know, treated in a way that I would not like to be treated or, you know, they communicate in some way that is just leaving me in bewilderment. I always wonder, like, what would your parents think if, mm-hmm. you know, they knew you were acting this way towards relationships or towards women in that way? But somehow culture within Denver, I, I don't know whose fault it is or, you know, what kind of creates it you know, has really developed men who are between 23 and 35 that feel like they're invincible Mm -hmm. and can treat women however they'd like to, no matter if they know if it's wrong or right. Yeah. And I wonder too, like, and I don't, I don't think it's fair to necessarily just blame that just on Denver. I think that that is a culture that's really developed around the country, right? And it's, it's distressing for me, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about over you know, the last year or so. And it's like, it just doesn't seem that you look at, you know, media and entertainment, like there just doesn't really seem to be a strong foundational example anymore of what healthy heterosexual relationships should look like. I love that you bring that up. Uh, last year, I read a book. It was just launched. I forget who it's by, but it's called Ladies Get Paid. Um, and this woman writes a really great book. She's a little too super left-leaning for my preference, but that's okay. The book is amazing. Um, She goes into kind of what you were saying to your point, uh, but more so on the professional side in that within the workplace and through entertainment and culture, there is no longer a want to have a heterosexual uh, monogamous relationship. Mm even though people might have grown up with that. And so what I think it comes down to ultimately is that how I put it is, you know, your plus sign will always shoot. You can have kids whenever you want. And so men in their twenties and now late thirties, uh, treat women as though it's a rotating door because they'll always be able to fall back on marriage or have children. Whereas for women, um, the biological clock still ticks at the same thing that it did 50, 60, 70, 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a great point. And I think even more than that, like it's almost, and even just like kind of the way that you're talking about it right there, like it's almost become adversarial in a way, right? Like it's, it's like men are supposed to go out there and embrace this fuckboy culture and, you know, no commitments, no consequences, and yet, you know, it, it feels like society for women, it's like, you have to find a man, you have to settle down, you have to ha- start having kids, right? So it's like, I think the whole structure of how relationships look today is just, I don't know, it just doesn't feel natural or healthy. Oh, 100%. And, you know, talking about the fuckboy stuff or how women feel push to take a traditional route. For me personally, I want to be a mother. I want to be married. Uh, and at 26, like, I think I'm still so young. I feel as though my biological clock is ticking. Like, my mom had me at 35. It was hard for her to get pregnant. So it comes down to not a desperation for anyone to have a boyfriend or have a relationship, but it's like, women have this intense fear. And there's this other book, The Defining Decade, uh, which is really great. It goes into why your 20s matter and your 30s throw them out the door if you don't do well in your 20s. Uh, 
goes into, you know, women are trying to make strides professionally and then they get to a certain age and it's like, when am I going to meet the one? Mm -hmm. If I meet the one, are we going to try and procreate in my mid thirties when your fertility is just plummeting? So that's the fear for women. It's, it's inherently biological and how everyone feels about it. And it's also a well-known thing among women. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we're not getting any younger and evolution isn't changing, but you know, men are invincible in the sense that once they're ready to settle down, they can settle down. Whereas for women, that's, it doesn't end that way. And it's interesting you bring up being in the workforce too, right? Cause that's also obviously another societal change where there's now many more women in the workforce. And so I'm curious, like, how do you think that maybe plays into relationship dynamics now that you know, there's more uh, parity in the workforce? I mean, when you say that, I immediately go back to the baby boomer generation, right? It's post-World War II. We're looking at track homes. Um, You know, Susie might be living at home. She's an elementary school teacher. Or um, the guy who just got back from war uh, met her, you know, in some weird way, like the notebook or something. Uh, Whereas now, that just doesn't exist. And so women who are unmarried or single aside from you know utah where that still exists like it's 1955 they're women are going to be in the workforce no matter what no matter if they're educated or not most of them aren't living at home waiting to get married whether you're a sales associate somewhere at the mall or you know you're a female engineer in your 20s you are going to be working no matter what Mm -hmm. and i think it's also interesting right when you talk about you know, the notebook or whatever, like people meeting much more organically. And now, you know, it's great that we have dating apps and stuff, which can help you meet people on, on the one hand. But on the flip side, I think people are just so much more distracted now, right? I mean, you notice when people are walking around, they're staring at their phone, they've got headphones in. So I think the ability to, and maybe not the ability, the, the willingness to meet people more organically is not what it used to be. COVID put that on hyperdrive. Sure. So... When people move here, you know, the majority of time it's guys, uh, whether they've moved here or not, but they'll immediately poo-poo dating apps. Oh, I could never. And, you know, in Denver, in large metropolitan young cities, that is the normalcy. Uh, You know, how often have you heard, oh, well, so-and-so and and I matched on Hinge and then we saw each other at a bar and that's... Uh, how we actually uh, met up for the first time. You know, we matched on Hinge two months ago and then I recognized him or he recognized me. So whether we think of it as organic uh, and whether we want to deny the truth in that, that is a large portion of finding a partner these days. Mm-hmm. Totally. So outside of that, I mean, what has been your experience with Denver? How do you like it? How does it compare to Utah? I really, I like Denver. I think it's different for maybe someone like you where it's like, I moved from Ohio. Uh, I'm so excited to drive three hours to go up I-70. <laughs> Look at there's mountains. It's not a Midwest winter where I want to kill myself. And that's where <laughs> I have to check, you know, basically my geographic privilege. 
Uh, so I see it very similar to how I see Utah. That's ultimately why I moved here to have uh, a different experience, but still be able to ski and have the mountains as well. Yeah. So, and whenever I have that conversation with people, they're just kind of dumbfounded. And I don't mean to sound like privileged in that or anything, but geographically, ecologically, how it looks outside is very similar to how it is in Utah. Mm -hmm. So it's not like moving here from the Midwest and just, you know, constantly being in awe of the nature around us. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky I've had that my whole life. It's a part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really nice. So, I mean, when you were in park city, you must've been basically just right on the, right on the mountainside, huh? Yeah. So I, I only skied um, here in Colorado this year, three days. And then I did 20 in Utah. Uh-huh. You know, I'm so, so, so lucky. I just can't fathom. I can't wrap my head around wanting to get up on a Saturday at 5 a.m. to drive three hours to the mountain when I could fly to Utah, have one of my parents pick me up, ski, and fly back in less amount of time than going up to the mountains in Denver on a Saturday. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's the truth. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, now being in Denver, you actually had done some work in the CBD space. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. So, you know, speaking to your choir, I started at a company. You all are welcome to look it up on LinkedIn in July of 2019. So they're originally in the vape and e-cigarette space. Uh, it's actually a great story. So our the former CEO of the company was from Ohio, uh, addicted to heroin. He ended up in Southern California. He thought uh, that where he was was the root cause of his addiction, which mm. heroin will follow you anywhere. Um, so he, on his 25th birthday, uh, went into like a Hampton Inn or something, a Holiday Inn, uh, Ramada, and you know went up to the Continental Breakfast Place and got a cup of coffee and whoever it was, the front desk was like, sir, you need to leave. And he was like, no, I'm in room 125 or whatever. And they were like, no, you're not. You need to leave. Uh, so he went back outside into, it was like a Nissan Sentra that uh, was owned by someone else in Ohio that he was living in. Um, and it was his birthday. No one had called him. And he looked in the driver's side mirror and was like, Brandon, this kind of sucks. Uh, he'd already clinically died 16 times. Um, and he knew there was an AA down the street where he could get a coffee and a, a cigarette. So long story short, uh, he started the Ohio house and the Buckeye recovery network. It's known as the gold standard in rehab aftercare. Mm. And so if you know anything about addiction, once people get clean, a lot of them start chain smoking. Mm. Um, so he started making vape juice for the guys that were within his centers, this vape shop in Southern California heard about it. Um, they asked him to come in. He brought all this homemade vape juice to, uh, the store and the guy said, you know, what's your, like, how many do I need to buy? And Brandon said 300. And the shop person was like, the MQO, your minimum quantity order is a hundred. And Brandon said 300 or I walk. So anyways, after that, he messed up his ankle playing basketball, decided to start a CBD company. Um, so we were really, really good in the space, proprietary extraction method, tinctures, topicals, all of that nature. But 
as this market has matured, whether it be on the THC side or the hemp side, ultimately as human beings, especially with technology, as we, as we have touched on before, we want instant gratification. And if there's not a psychedelic effect like THC, CBD does not give instant gratification. It's a, it's a long-term play as, you know, like taking fish oil or something of that mm-hmm. nature. So at the beginning, it was touted as all these incredible things and everyone's going to get into CBD. Uh, and now as the market has matured and hemp has gone down in price, though, mm-hmm. this previous company still exists. Back then, because of the 2018 Farm Bill, everyone thought that they were going to be in the next gold rush, you know, just like THC was in 2013. So with mushrooms coming to the forefront next, or if you look at maps or psychedelics or psilocybin, you know, all those things put together, um, those things do have more of an immediate effect. So how the government is going to play into that uh, at a federal level, at a state level, um, versus how we look at hemp, THC, uh, now we have THCO, Delta 8, all these things that are workarounds to still get high. It'll be very, very interesting to see how the mushroom and psychedelic market uh, matures versus looking at hemp and CBD. Yeah, totally. You know, and, and with regards to the CBD space specifically, you know, that's been something that uh, me and my business partners have certainly been very disappointed that the industry has not matured more since the passage of the farm bill. Right. And, you know, for the listeners benefit, I think one of the main reasons that it hasn't progressed more is because the FDA has not yet issued guidance on, you know, what type of things can be marketed and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, that's been a big delay on the industry. And, and I've got some thoughts on that, but Libby would love to kind of get your thoughts being more directly impacted by that. You know, how, how, how do you view the regulatory landscape for CBD? I'm, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you bring that up. And so I think for listeners, when, you know, Jordan, you say, you know, the FDA and their regulatory stuff, it's so lacking within the CBD space. We think, oh, you know, people are putting CBD out there that has THC in or this or that. Um, Yes, which does happen. But the core of not having FDA regulations and FDA panel testing is that We could go to the 7-Eleven right now, buy a 30-pack of Dasani water bottles, hire a graphic designer to make really cool CBD labels to slap on the water bottles, and go sell it anywhere. So it's something like back in, it's an old stat now, but over uh, 80% of CBD on the market isn't actually CBD at all. Wow. And so you know, government regulation in some ways inhibits business and things of that nature, but the FDA setting regulations would not so much be safety against plasticides, which is a whole nother rabbit hole of CBD and hemp, but it would be literally ensuring that the product they're selling is CBD. Yeah. You know, and uh, one of the excuses FDA has come out with is that, you know, oh, well, we had to shift to COVID and, you know, our priorities were, were moved around. And I, I'm sure there's some truth to that, but as I've done some research into some of the more unscrupulous events that happened during the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of the potential regulatory capture that we've seen within our regulators relative to the pharmaceutical companies, 
I'm not so sure that's the whole story. And, and I think that it's very possible that pharmaceutical companies are actively stopping or, you know, pushing the FDA to not issue guidance because they worry that CBD could take away some of their heavy, heavy opiate sales and other, other heavier pharmaceutical drugs. So I used to think that I used to think that heavily and passionately, especially, I mean, you coming from Ohio, me having intimate experience of those that have suffered from opiate addiction from Ohio, it would be a great story for American society to be able to die on the hill of saying that Emperor CBD uh, was able to be a segue out of the damage that opiates have done. But ultimately, CBD is not that powerful. Mm -hmm. It is an incredible anti-inflammatory. I like to tell people uh, that it's similar to ibuprofen which ibuprofen is great as an anti-inflammatory. It's great for sleep when you pair it with CBN uh, or other cannabinoids. But ultimately, pharmaceutical companies, they don't really care because the nation's never going to get addicted to CBD. Uh, And so what it is, is ultimately when we look at sectors like Procter & Gamble or the -the over-the-counter versions of Johnson products, Once any federal regulatory things happen, every drugstore, every grocery store of all the major brands we know will have a CBD product. Mm -hmm. They'll be your Neutrogena CBD, uh, your Baby Johnson & Johnson Safe CBD, uh, every consumer packaged goods brand, every over-the-counter pharmaceutical brand will have some type of hemp or CBD product that will have a very, very minuscule amount in it uh, and they'll sell it as they'd like to. I kind of see it as melatonin. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I think that's a really great point. And, you know, certainly not just don't want to just focus on opiates. Like I think there are a lot of other great benefits for CBD, like people, you know, dealing with um, cancer and, you know, I think it can help with a lot of the side effects from chemotherapy and all that kind of thing. But, you know, as you talk about substances that are more powerful and are more effective for treating addiction, I think psychedelics is naturally one that shows a lot of promise. And I may be misremembering this, but is it true that the founder of AA was actually a proponent of using LSD to help people get off of alcohol? Yes. So going back to how to change your mind, uh, he ultimately, aside from the Christianity component of AA, credits it to LSD. and so. Back to your point, uh, cancer or people with um, long-term pain, when we look at opiates and stuff like that, yes, kind of that's what I said. And it's a better ibuprofen or it's it's Uh an anti-inflammatory. But yeah, I, and we'll have to do footnotes at the end of this podcast to see what we've said correct and incorrect. (laughs) But uh, the average cost to cure someone with LSD or an MDMA or any psilocybin type product is 13 bucks a person for the pure drug itself, Mm -hmm. putting aside therapy and things Mm -hmm. of that nature. Uh, So yeah, the pharmaceutical companies there, you know, or how are we going to monetize? How are we going to beat that? Yeah. And that's, what's one of the things that's so screwed up with our healthcare system is you would think logically the drug is cheap great but the pharmaceutical companies think the exact opposite and uh i think it's frankly created an environment that's very dangerous and very harmful overall 
Oh, 100%, because we could all uh, illegally grow whatever uh, poppies go with heroin and opiates, but we're not going to get the exact same product. Whereas, you know, looking at psilocybin or looking at acid um, to the general public who is interested, it's a lot easier to create the end product uh, than it is with other prescriptions. You know, that's why we look at patents for drugs and that's how pharmaceutical companies get rich in this situation that does not exist. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they can try and patent kind of like opiates, uh, you know, extended release, uh, what have you of any psychedelic or things of that nature, instant release, uh, patches, stuff like that. But ultimately, uh, the chemical core product, uh, is accessible to create outside of their labs. Mm Well, for now it is. There are certain companies like Compass Pathways that are trying to patent certain certain psychedelic compounds, which has created a big backlash from the psychedelics community because that's, again, I mean, it's just, I I truly believe that we don't have institutionalized healthcare. We have institutionalized sick care and being able to patent naturally occurring substances is just one of the many methods that the pharmaceutical companies have been able to keep their oligopoly in place. Yeah. And, you know, we look at it, do we want to see it from an elitist point of view? Uh, We'll leave that for the pharmaceutical companies and, uh, you know, the professors or the politicians that we all have in their pockets, or do we see it as a populist type of thing, which ultimately they can try and patent, um, you know, whatever compounds they have, but the core of these medicines are not new. Mm -hmm. We already know. And they exist throughout our Anglo-Saxon communities, um, throughout Native American communities, and uh, I'm sure many uh, diverse ethnic backgrounds that a white girl from Utah cannot speak to. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think Michael Pollan in his book makes the point of like every culture besides the Inuits have used them and the Inuits is just because none grow up there. (laughs) Yeah, it's too cold. Yeah. Uh, have you worked with any psychedelics yourself? Uh, personally or professionally? Both. So last year, last 4th of July was the uh, first time I had done shrooms. And, you know, any time you're about to try any new thing, skiing, flying on a long flight to Europe, uh, getting a tattoo, getting a piercing, or doing um, recreational drugs, you are interviewing every single person you know uh, to be able to get their perspective and their opinion on it. Uh, And so I began microdosing here and there, yeah, last July. And then actually two weeks ago was the first time that I actually ate enough mushrooms to be able to trip. Mm -hmm. Uh, But back to your point, psychedelics and that stuff with MDMA, MDMA, you know, Michael Pollan in his book speaks uh, very in depth about uh, the healing powers. But truth be told, growing up, I come from very strict parents. Um, They only had one kid. They were hypersensitive of me growing up in Park City. So they kind of did the anti-spoiling I was under the impression that my dad had never smoked weed before because he was in the Marines. But now 
were super, super, super um, open about past drug use, recreational drug use. Um, and so with that, my mom had told me um, back in the 80s that she had had multiple really, really bad acid trips. Yeah. I was under the impression that it was one. I said, you know, that one. And she was like, no, God, honey, I was an idiot. I did it so many times. Um, so I don't know. Going into that realm is something that at least at this point in my life as a single female working professional, I don't know if I'd be able to venture into. I don't have yeah. an interest at this point. Yeah. How was that trip a couple of weeks ago? Um, it was interesting. Now I understand why um, when people actually go on mushroom trips and stuff, uh, it's a very almost introverted experience with nature mm-hmm. and you don't want to be in social groups. I had never understood that before, just microdose, microdosing. But uh, I very much understood uh, why, why people are passionate about their thinking in that um, as I was around a large group of people and I just wanted to be in my own little world. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And I think that part of the reason in the 60s that it received such a backlash was for that exact reason, right? Like people just were taking it in the wrong set and setting. You know, you heard stories of people dumping it in Kool-Aid and like no one knew what, that they were drinking yeah, it. Yeah, what was that? All of New York or something got, yeah. Yeah, yeah crazy. So, um, so I understand that like, you know, obviously there is a lot of harm that can happen if you're not taking them in the right set and setting with the right skill set. And so I think it's, that's one of the reasons that I think we're seeing such tremendous resurgence with this kind of psychedelic renaissance is that you now got people like Michael Pollan and, you know, some of these researchers that have been doing work for decades to say, hey, here's, here's what are some of the potential for helping with mental health issues. And in my personal experience, you know, as, as a bit of an explorer on the substances is that I think that's even just touching the surface, right? There's this whole concept of the betterment of healthy people that they talk about. And, you know, Terrence McKenna was a big proponent of the fact that, you know, psychedelics aren't doing anything that your brain isn't naturally capable of doing. They're just helping to unlock processes that are latent within every human being and helping us to unlock what our true potential is, which in my opinion is, is infinite. Yes. And then, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because when you look at these things and people describe their trips or, you know, you think of your own personal experiences um, with these recreational, I'll call it a mind trip. um, You know, when you look back on it or when um, you're in the middle of it, there's no revelation outside of yourself. It's an incredibly, incredibly um, intimate experience within yourself. And it's, you know, I'd almost like to think of it as kind of unlimited file cabinets of your life. Mm. And you're ruffling through the file cabinets, um, finding stuff that existed um, because it's your own self, but you had completely forgotten about, or, you know, it gets so deep that you didn't really realize it existed beyond uh, deep inside your subconscious, whether it be trauma or successes that, you know, ultimately make up who you are at this 
current stage in life. Mm -hmm. So would you say it was like a positive experience overall or not so much? It was fine. Um, I'll have to think to articulate. And when, when I, the statement I just made, um, you know, I guess that was from previous experiences with psychedelics as well, but, um, the experience I had two weeks ago was just a very, very intimate. And I'm, I'm a closed off person, even to my own self. Um, you know, and that's from experiences, but to be able to experience the most vulnerable parts of my mind and be comfortable with them and want to explore them more is something that is very powerful beyond uh, comprehension, mm-hmm. especially for women where it's not so much as men, you know, being a successful guy or a mindful guy is maybe you know who Michael Pollan is. Um, you know, you love Jordan Peterson, you love Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, you, you know what the daily stoic is, things of that nature. (laughs) Sure. But for women, there's such an intense pressure for, uh, self-improvement. Um, and so what I fear is the psychedelic community, um, And then, you know, the influencer community, the online therapist community, um, you know, these women that perpetuate self-help and self-improvement kind of taking a stronghold on psychedelics um, for their female audiences. Because I think so much of what women see and so much of why I'm hard on myself or why others are... um, you know, is the fear of being phony. Mm. Uh, but also if I journal enough, if I meditate enough, if I work out enough, if I read enough, if I do this and this and this, then I will be the most ideal version of myself. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of that is not self-awareness and self-acceptance. Mm. Um, it's a fear mongering tactic of you're not going to be your best self and you're not putting your best foot forward. And ultimately you're selling yourself short, you're failing and you'll never reach this peak happiness. Uh, you know, and that's digitally, I don't use TikTok, but I know it's prevalent there. Instagram, Instagram therapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I have seen myself, in thinking about doing psychedelics, bundling all those things up together and thinking, you know, I'll, I'll finally reach the anti- antithesis of this once I do it. But then in being in a trip, it's no, I'm okay. And you find a deep self awareness and self acceptance um, within yourself that is very powerful and leaves you questioning if you're doing the right things to be enough. That's really interesting. And I think it, you bring up so many excellent points right there. And one of the things for me is like, I view each human being, right? Like a snowflake, like we are unique and beautiful and individual in our own way. That said, we live in a society that does not necessarily, let me rephrase that. We live in a society that does not 
no matter how much they say they do, does not embrace that individuality and that free thinking and that, and, you know, that uh, being a lone wolf kind of mentality, right? So it's like, you talk about how you see on social media and stuff, all these, all these ways for self-improvement, but in a sense, society also can, is trying to self-improve you to what they say you should be, not to your honest and truest and best personal individual self is. And so I'm just curious, how do you think about those two kind of competing factors? So in the 90s and in the early 2000s, I think of it um, as the dot-com boom. That was very much so molding society and saying this is how you succeed uh, to take uh, an exit really quick. When I graduated high school, I thought I was dumb. I didn't think I was smart um, because, you know, Park City was amazing. High school for me was harder than college. Um, if you weren't on an engineering track, you weren't on a STEM track, um, you know, you're to the wolves. Don't even imagine trade school. We don't talk about that. Um, so I think it has matured beyond being sardines and being molded by society into what is perceived as the best version of Mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I see it as elitist self-help gurus feeding us ultimately what they are selling to be the best version of ourselves because this is guilt and what is sold to have not be perfect, but be perfect in your improvement and in how you love yourself um, targets millennials. And I don't know about Gen Z from every walk of life, mm-hmm. whereas before, you know, and especially with COVID and things of that nature, you're going to get a suit, you're going to get a job, you're going to do this and this where that's so malleable now, but the, whatever path you're on to have the most self-improvement workout, go on hot girl walks, uh, drink your (laughs) tea. You should be vegan too. If you're not vegan, you're ruining yourself. If you're not journaling every day, if you're not meditating every day, um, and everyone falls victim to that. And so I think that's kind of what I wouldn't say scary because ultimately, you know, anyone would think back 10 years and look at the next 10 years and think scary, but it's not so much molding anymore people into what society sees as perfect because men ultimately at that point wouldn't be fuck boys anymore. Uh, they'd want to get married and settle down. So it's a really personalized approach to people and it's within themselves and you're just kind of on your own figuring out how to navigate that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing you say is, is something that I struggle with too, in the sense of like Tony uh, Robbins is definitely one of the guys that I would consider a guru. And like, he has this idea of, can I constant and never ending self-improvement? And I fully subscribe to it. And I think once I really did, like my life has changed for the better in every way, but on the flip side to what you're talking about is it can just, feel like it's adding more pressure to your life, right? To be perfect and never stop improving, to never have a minute's rest. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's tough, right? Like in a sense, like that, that whole idea of self-improvement in some ways can be very counterproductive. 
So what we're craving when we think of this use of self-improvement and habit building, um, it's almost an avoidance in a way. Um, you know, we want to see ourselves as the captain of a super yacht, standing confidently on the bridge, steering our life to the point at which we'll finally feel adequate, acceptable, and on top of things. And so we devise these schemes for self-improvement and it feeds into this fantasy, whereas just doing something today, just being yourself, um, unsubscribing to whatever Tony Robbins wants you to do today. Mm-hmm it requires us to surrender control and it means launching our little canoe onto rapids and letting life take you wherever it's going to take you. And I think ultimately for you or I, it means risking that you'll do the thing badly and certainly that you'll do it imperfectly because from a control perspective, when these gurus tell us these things, it's, let me have this rigid schedule. Um, let me bend over backwards and kill myself for work and find value in that, which that's something I'm working on finding value outside of succeeding at work. Yeah. But stepping off the path that we have been taught with this continual self-improvement and just shooting the shit or not working out or going on a walk um, we surrender everything that we have worked for in order to do this one thing. And then we feel like a failure in some sense, mm-hmm. cause we're not in control of it, mm-hmm. which is so different from any generation before us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think it can make it harder to be present as well. You find that? Oh, 100%. You're constantly feeling guilty, um, about what you're not doing to improve or be mm. present that you forget to just be kind to yourself and be easy on yourself and just live life without thinking of all these things that we have deemed so important to excel. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you like that you think can really just kind of get you in that present, you know, flow state? Like, do you have any hobbies or things you like to read or anything like that? Well, flow state, you know, I just think of being in a really good groove at work. And then Mm -hmm. you see you have a meeting in 12 minutes and you're like, oh, damn, I'm in such a good flow state right now. But and I'm curious to see how you respond to what I'm about to say. Something that I've realized in the past six months is maybe eight months is I'll just work until 9 PM because why, why wouldn't I, uh, I'll cancel working out and then I'll just have a salad for dinner to make up for that. And I'll schedule to work out at 5 AM the next morning. But I realized that with so many of my coworkers having children, they have a hard stop of when they stop working, they Mm -hmm. have a spouse or they have a child. And just because I don't have that doesn't make a hard stop of when I'm not working any less valid. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge realization because before I'd be like, well, my boss would be doing this too, but she's cooking dinner for her family or whatever. And ultimately that burnout that millennials see, I think that that might be the cause of that. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious if that has ever come up in your mind, that hard stop. You know, 
win essentially your your own boss on behalf yeah. of your team and whatnot. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. You know, um, <clears throat> I'd say in the first couple years of starting the business, we just didn't have the luxury of of stopping because you know we we're going to run out of money and there was a lot of pressure from all, all around. But uh, you know, the last couple of years since things have gotten more uh, at least stable, like it's just it's it's been something that I've just really forced myself to do and. You know, and talking about gurus again, I mean, you know, I learned a lot from Tim Ferriss too, as well, in terms of just setting your schedule as well as you can. And I think that's another place where, you know, when we started out, we were having to cold call every person in the cannabis industry or everyone who might have some money just because, you know, we were the new kids on the block and we knew who the hell we were. Now that dynamic has kind of flipped where we've got a fully invested fund, we've got portfolio companies. So I have the luxury of being able to say, you're going to schedule these meetings around my time. And so I've really gotten, gotten focused on, you know, trying to batch whatever meetings I have all in a couple hours in the afternoon so that I can use the morning for whatever is most important and get in that flow state. And then in the afternoon, you know, I'm done with work. I like that. So that's interesting. So do you use your mornings for personal time of any sense? Is that Mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, I'd say so since I stopped drinking, especially I've been getting up earlier so I'll typically take like the first hour to meditate, read, shower, go get coffee. And then I'll use, you know, the morning block to just get the one most important thing that, you know, takes a lot of brain power that I care about. And it's like, that's one thing I found that like, if you can just knock out the most important thing every day, take a couple hours, like your productivity just goes off the roof. Oh, 100%. You have to do the hardest thing at the beginning of the day. Yeah. So for me, this, you know, for people listening, they're like, okay, psychopath. Uh, when you just said, you know, I'll wake up, I'll meditate, I'll shower, I'll go and get coffee. Um, where I'll try to journal or do affirmations before I start work for me, like I'll set the coffee the night before, have it go off at six. I'll be out of bed by six 15 and I'll use my most brain capacity for the most productive things mm-hmm. right then. Um, so when you say that in my head, I'm like, well, what if before you did that, aside from doing affirmations, you went on a walk and got coffee and came back? I have this fear that my my brain productivity won't be enough to even have the luxury of doing something like that. Interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like you like to be like very disciplined on a specific schedule. Oh yes. And it's ultimately a control thing within friendships or social situations. I don't care about control, but with things that I feel as though I'm in charge of, or I feel as though people's experience in whatever it is, work or a social situation is based on what I can provide. I'm hyper, hyper, extremely stringent and working on Mm -hmm. not being that way so much in those situations, Yeah, which I think a lot of women are like that. I don't think that's something that is unique to me. Yep. Yep. I think so. I think, uh, men too struggle with the control thing. And, you know, I think getting back to even the psychedelics conversation, like that is one of the most profound benefits I've found from it is it's helped me to surrender some of that, certainly not nearly enough. But I also think on the flip side, that's why a lot of people uh, who are newer to it or, you know, not necessarily comfortable with the substances, why they struggle with it so much, because I mean, the, the whole idea of ego dissolution at its essence is surrendering that control of everything you thought you were and thought you knew in a sense. 
Well, and surrendering it within your sense of self, not, I'm going to clear my calendar today, but surrendering, surrendering yourself to your own sense of self is incredibly deep and yeah. not having control of the things that you inherently block out, out of control and out of your emotions. Um, you know, and for people listening, that doesn't mean just having a cry fest. It's a very, at least for me, it's a very stoic experience, but Mm -hmm. it's so intimate in that you're surrendering control to yourself. And I don't think that there's anything more intense than that in an emotional human experience. Mm. What do you feel on that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, so you're saying, say say again with regards to the um, intense emotional experience. So whatever that you have experienced in life, the highest highs, the highest lows, Uh I think that with psychedelics surrendering all and being able to sit in a room with those thoughts and those experiences is harder than actually going through them because Mm. you're having to actually acknowledge them, not with a therapist, with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think that is, uh, you know, again, one of the reasons a lot of people shy away from them or, you know, view that the experience to be bad is because it's, it's bringing them face to face with all those demons or all the weeds in the garden that they've been trying to avoid. But and deep side, weeds, deep weeds, not your dandelions, things that are between you and whatever you perceive as your higher power, um, mm-hmm. things that you don't bring up to a therapist or to your mother, or, you know, you even try to push them under the rug within your own mind. That's a level of intimacy within self that is kind of incomprehensible unless you're experiencing it in real time. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's also why it can be so valuable because those are the exact issues that you need to be addressing. And I think it's also part of the reason why you see, you know, just such high rates of people abusing substances in modern day, right. Or just, you know, being addicted to television or their phone or whatever it is. It's because they're just looking for a distraction from the whispers that won't go away about whatever this trauma is that, you know, cause everyone has trauma, you know, some people have big T, some people have little T that builds over time, but either way it's there, right? No, no one has gotten to this point in life without some hiccups in the road. And, and so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think coming face to face with those can, uh, can be really, really challenging for people, but on the other side of it, it can also be really rewarding. Oh, for sure. And so whether it's TV at night or it's using um, a self-improvement, I'd almost say as a self-elitist method, not elitist to others, but within yourself, you're failing yourself if you don't get to the most elite level of your self-improvement. Those are, for high-functioning people, the ways that you medicate avoiding your darkest demons and ultimately you can work out and exercise and meditate and go to therapy all you want. But if you don't ultimately get to the core and face 
the deepest things within yourself, it's just a cycle of avoidance. Yeah. And it's a cycle of then going back into the self-help cycle. So I'm not sure what the solution is. Maybe it is psychedelics, but uh, it's a, it's a lot to think about. Yeah. And accept whatever you may think about it and not have an end goal. Just be able to accept you. Yeah, that's beautiful. And feel free to punt on this question, but, you know, given what you're just talking about, are there any places in your life where you felt that, you know, there were some deep issues that you had to get in there and root out or on the flip side, things that maybe are still there today that you, you know, haven't yet dealt with? Yeah. So the, uh, the trauma that I experienced with, uh, a relationship ending, um, there was a lot of social components that came across it as well. And I never thought that things that happened to me at 23 and 22 would be affecting me now at 26. Um, but I now have an understanding within the past six months that I'm a control freak with kind of, as we spoke about earlier, um, professional things and then, you know, social things where I think people um, would put me at fault if it didn't go well. Mm. Uh, And so being able to let go of those things and being able to understand that not everyone you get close with might be out to get you is a lot to deal with as a 26 year old when you thought those issues were so long gone. They're not necessarily long gone. I'm just really, really, really good at uh, navigating them so that I never feel out of control again. Yeah. And it sounds to me like from the way you're describing it, a lot of that is driven by, you know, you trusted this person you were in a relationship with and they hurt you so deeply that maybe that has um, prevented you from being able to open up again to other people. Is that fair? Oh yeah. And I didn't think it was that way, but ultimately if I'm in control in any version of my life, or let's say it's a SaaS company, any vertical of my life, ultimately, if I'm in control, then there's nothing that can hurt me. And I think, you know, maybe it's me wanting to connect with others, but I think a lot of us do that subconsciously and then realizing that you're doing that is a big thing. It's a good thing. It's just, I didn't expect to be here. And I also want to say, I'm not a victim of anything. I'm a very lucky person and I wouldn't take the experiences back that I've had. Uh, It's now just navigating life and really looking deep inside the ways that I manage those things. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, And so earlier, as we were talking about, you know, growing up in, um, in Utah, you know, you mentioned that your family was not Mormon. I'm curious though, did you, uh, did your family have any uh, religion that you grew up with? You still have any type of organized religion that you're part of? No. Um, my dad grew up in an intensely Catholic family. Um, his biological dad died when he was two. His stepdad died when he was 22. 
Um, and so his mom being a double widow became a very devout Catholic. Um, and so seeing the Mormon religion and not thinking anything about Catholicism, I've just never connected with it. Uh, ultimately I do align with Judeo-Christian values. Um, it's healthy. Anyone will tell you whether they're an atheist or not, but, um, believing in some higher divine power is good for the soul. And so uh, I do believe in something, whether it's in the present life or the afterlife. But if I were to be uh, someone who would be religious, I would convert to Judaism. Hmm. Uh, You know, there's Charlotte and sex in the city if women are listening. (laughs) But ultimately, their entire purpose is on the present life. And to me, Occam's razor, that just makes the most sense, Hmm. you know. You want to dedicate your life to what's present and not doing the best you can to make it into the right realm uh, when you're put in a coffin. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, so um, I grew up, uh, my dad was Jewish, my mom was Catholic, but neither of them too. Um, like, you know, we would go on, like, the holidays and stuff like that, but never went, like, with any recurring frequency. Um, and then I had a bar mitzvah when I was 13. Then kind of really from there pushed away from uh, organized religion. I don't know if I'd ever say I was an atheist, but I was definitely agnostic. Um, and then about a year ago when I had a spiritual awakening, you know, that my, my, my views changed very dramatically on the whole concept of divinity and higher power. Um, I still certainly don't subscribe to the idea of, like, God in, in the way that I think a lot of modern religions, right, of, of God being this external entity outside of you, commanding you to do what he predominantly says, right? For me, I've, I've come to view it as much more that God or divinity is everything in everyone, that we are relative manifestations of this higher, pure field of consciousness through which we're all connected. Yes. I love how you articulated that. Um, because when we think of organized religion, we think of all the good it's done, um, you know, in an organization wise, but ultimately I don't think the religions themselves ever had the end goal of having families be torn apart, having children, hide things from their parents due to religion, having prior judgments. Uh, So something, when I was home a few weeks ago, I told my mom, you know, I said, if my children want to go to any church, that's fine. If I decide to become religious and they want to come, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But something that I will never do, and I was not raised this way, but other people that we know were raised this way, I will not raise my children with a fear of God. Mm Uh, I will raise them to do right by themselves and right by others, you know, in whatever that divinity is. But I do not like the fear of God thing that persists throughout organized religion and Christianity. I don't think it's right. Um, And if people disagree with me, wonderful. I hope that people disagree, but I don't want to have that be a part of my life or the people that I raise. If they want to be God loving, that's great, Mm -hmm. but I don't want them to be God fearing. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And, you know, I think that's something that extends beyond 
organized religion as well. It, I, I think all power structures in our modern society use fear as a way to control people. And it's just, you know, any, any, um, any doctor or, you know, scientist worth their weight in gold would say like fear is such a weak emotion. Like it, it's destructive to your body. Yes. There's a purpose for it. If we're in an environment where we're, you know, on the Sahara being attacked by a lion. Right. But in everyday life, love is such a more powerful compassion, right? Gratitude. These are the things that heal your body that contribute to your long-term health and happiness. And so it really, uh, it really grinds my gears when I just see this perpetual view of fear from religion, from the media, from the politicians, whoever it may be, because I, I, I see through it and I think it's all bullshit designed to keep us down. Yeah. And then, you know, we're going into a, a totally different realm of this conversation, but I, I, and we're not going to go into politics when I say this, but, um, I judge people when they say they're not political and I try not to be judgmental, but I will judge on that. Um, and I think the way we watch the news, especially for millennials is different. I don't watch the news. Um, I get my news from, uh, sources as though I see on bias online, mm -hmm. uh, because to your point, the fear mongering, um, one of the major news networks randomly came on on the television downstairs a few months ago, uh, while I was curling my hair upstairs and they were, I could, I could hear from upstairs. They were speaking about COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was so intense and so fear mongering. And so let's, lock all the doors. Everyone is going to die in my head. I thought, Oh, that's so funny. Something from our online streaming service. Like they picked up a newscast mm -hmm. from a year, two years ago. That's so weird. And then once I was done curling my hair, I was like, I'm going to go see what, when this is from, like, this is so funny. And it was from that day. Um, and I think that just kind of speaks to what you were saying in that way. And you know, people think that they watch whatever news channel and they're so educated on whatever facts those are, but ultimately information these days is at our fingertips and you cannot be trustworthy of any source. That's why I go back to free speech. You need to get whatever you're learning from multiple sources to become unbiased um, because having confirmation bias in any sense uh, is just incredibly dangerous. Totally. It's incredibly dangerous. And then you look at, you know, at least the mainstream media, and I think this is continues to extend to the alternative media as well, but at least for the mainstream media, I mean, those outlets are all owned by about five corporations max. Like it's insane. And guess who owns those? The same guys that own the pharmaceutical companies and the banks and the oil and gas companies. It's like, come on guys. Like we gotta, we gotta wake up to who is portraying these messages to us. And your point about free speech is something that I'm really passionate about as well. And it's been really terrifying for me during COVID seeing how people have been silenced and deplatformed under the guise of these people are spreading medical misinformation. They're anti-vaxxers. And people of our generation are the largest proponents of this silencing. Yeah. Yeah, the whole like woke culture, it's, it's, uh, it's scary. It, it really is. And I think people are missing the forest for the trees a little bit here, right? Obviously, I don't condemn hate speech. Like, uh, obviously, we shouldn't have transphobic speech or anything like that. Of course not. But at the 
counterpoint is like, who is the person that's deciding this is hate speech or this is medical misinformation, right? Well, I disagree. Um, and I hope no one minces my words. I am a proponent, I'm a proponent of transphobic rhetoric and hate speech because without it being out in the air and being free, there is no one to condemn it. Mm. And without condemning those that said it, those that think it, there is no opportunity for them to have their minds changed or realize that um, there is an alternative to their um, archaic way of thinking. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if I was famous or something, someone would probably cut that snippet and say, oh, she's transphobic and she loves hate speech. But no, those things are very, very important. And without them being out in the air, um, people won't face the societal consequences of saying them or have the opportunity to learn differently. Totally. I think that's that's a great point. You know, I think Dave Chappelle has, for me, done a great job of like highlighting a lot of this type of stuff, too. And it's like, look, if he's like, that's what the role of the comedian is in society is to be able to say things that other people aren't able to or are uncomfortable saying and highlight some things that don't make sense in society. Right. And look, if, if you disagree with what he says or the jokes and that's that's your prerogative to disagree with him, to condemn him, to not watch his stand up comedies. But what you don't have a right to do is silence someone because you disagree with what they have to say. I love the Dave Chappelle example because it is so compelling and it's so relevant right now um, because it's happening in real time. Uh, And so, you know, a litany of comedians came out that are, you know, maybe more on the woke side. And, you know, they said, you don't have to be, you don't need to say those things in order to be funny. And I'm not giving my opinion on it because humor is perceived differently for every person. But to your point, just silencing it. No, it, mm-hmm. silencing people and limiting speech for those that you don't agree with um, really, really limits the upper capacity and higher level thinking of the human brain and just reiterates and pounds and pounds confirmation bias and comfortability. Yep, yep. totally. And I think. The other piece that a lot of people miss in this discussion is who are we trusting to be the arbiters of truth, right? The state, the same tech and media corporations that are owned by the same oligarchs that run the entire country, right? It's like, we we need to think a little bit deeper, right? Are we really comfortable trusting this very small group of men to decide what is truth for the country over the individual American. And, you know, this is not a small matter. I think a lot of people misunderstand censorship because part of one of the many issues with censorship is that there's no record of it. Right. So you think, Oh, they're, they're censoring a few, you know, crazy QAnon people who are trying to take over the Capitol. When in fact, the problem is much more pervasive than that. And because censorship by nature destroys any trace of what's been said, we don't know what, what the people who have been kicked off these platforms have said or what they're trying to expose. Oh, I, yes. I love that you bring up that point because the woke mob, the cancel culture, that is great. I love that for them. I'll use a 
you know, cliche phrase there. I love that they want to cancel whoever, but the side effects of canceling, they don't go that far. So what does that mean to cancel? Let's say Dave Chappelle's specials were on prime video instead of Netflix. Okay. Well, um, Jeff Bezos owns the Huffington post. So how is that going to be handled in that sense? Uh, people don't realize that it's all connected. So I support cancel culture up until their inability to understand that uh, once you permanently cancel someone off a channel, um, they're unable to cancel anymore. Right. Right. And like, think about, you know, say someone who's pro trans rights is saying we need to cancel Dave Chappelle. Well, what if there's someone who is, you know, against homosexuality and says we need to cancel Ellen DeGeneres, right? Who's to say one has that power over the other, right? Like, obviously I I have my own moral compass and I don't think either is right. But my point is just that when you start giving any entity, any organization, most importantly, the state or these very powerful elite corporations, the power to choose what is truth, that sets an incredibly dangerous precedent. Yeah, because what moral compass exists without our ability to define it with what is good and what is bad and to let whatever we perceive as good as bad or good or bad, um, live on or kind of fester and die mm-hmm. without that. The whole thing is just really messed up. And I, I try to be really empathetic to those and understanding of those that have views that are different than mine. It's something that I, you know, have a lot of pride in. I think I'm pretty good at But when it comes to free speech, that is my hard stop of, unfortunately, I don't have an understanding of how you want to limit that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think it's one of, if not the most important inalienable rights that we have. And it's, it's under attack. It really is. Well, you know, when we look back to the free press and things of that nature, you know, if you, you ever nicely ask someone a question about, you know, and again, we're not getting political. It's just a relevant example. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why Trump shouldn't be on social media, whatever, you know, they'll say whatever January 6th or whatever mm-hmm. that day was. Um, but whether you agree or disagree with him without his views and his Kofefe tweets uh, to be out there for us to, agree with or accept or fight over the whole idea of free speech just doesn't exist. Totally. I think that's such a great point. And even with, you know, the hearings going on for the six, like to me, it appears that there's been a very pre-established agenda of, you know, how these hearings are going to shake out. And again, to your point, because everything's been taken down, we don't know what the facts are, right? I don't understand why there were police officers that were letting people into the building that day. That is very strange to me. And, and, you know, not to go down that rabbit hole, but, you know, from my perspective, like I was hugely anti-Trump, you know, I, I just, you know, I didn't think he represented the morals that, you know, our country represents, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I still, I still feel that way from him as a person for sure, but I've also, come to believe that I don't really trust any of our politicians. I don't trust our state at all. I think the corruption is monumental throughout the entire system. And so when you have something as meaningful and and major of an event like 
like what happened at the Capitol riots, like we deserve to see all the evidence of what happened, not whatever the tech companies and the media chooses to cherry pick for our review. Well, yeah, a hundred percent, especially when, you know, said tech companies were, uh, you know, some of the largest, uh, campaign funders for, uh, campaigns other than Trump. Yeah. But, you know, kind of circling back to that without having any knowledge, how are we supposed to come to any logical judgment, um, within our own selves Mm -hmm. without an extreme confirmation bias? Totally. That's such a good point. Yeah. A friend of mine was showing me the other day of like, campaign donations of employees from all the big tech companies. And it was like Netflix, 99.8% them, Twitter, 98, you know what I mean? Facebook, blah, 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 yeah. blah. And it's like, look, those people are, are entitled to uh, donate who, for who they want. And I, I typically have been a Democrat myself. Um, but the point is that, you know, there's clearly a bias for the people that are controlling the information flow that we're seeing. Right. And so it's like, why is it okay for us to say, Trump absolutely was responsible for the capital riots and not okay for us to say, you know, there's a lot of things that happened with the election that don't add up. If you even broach the subject of potential election fraud, you're a psycho, you're crazy, shut them down, take them off the internet, right? It appears to me that there's a very specific narrative that the people in charge want to have portrayed. Yeah, and, you know, kind of going off of what you just said, if I don't, I don't know who really cares about January 6th anymore. Um, if you do, and this is my free speech, what a luxury. Um, you know, it's been so long since then. And there's been so many, um, large events that have happened since then. Uh, and so I guess my point is with that, is, you know, I never want conversations like this to have anything to do with politics. Uh, but it ultimately comes down to free speech. Mm-hmm. I want to support you or I want to condemn you on my own terms. And so when we see Twitter and Facebook, you know, being of their donations over 99%, and those are the mediums ultimately at which, um, we now put out information and seek information. There's a lot of gray area and a lot to be said for what free speech ultimately means now, because whether you like him or not, uh, Trump or Dave Chappelle, um, they're not going to get much traction uh, going out on their horse and handing out flyers. Yep. Yep. You're right. You're right. And what's important to remember, right, is that, because I know that we've kind of, you know, this, this has kind of gone down a little bit of a pessimistic rabbit hole, but I do want to just remind people that this has always been an issue, right? Like the, the, the powers that be have always controlled whatever the forms of media of the day are, be it radio, be it television, be it, you know, the printing press back in the day, right? I mean, people, and I, I love the printing press. Like, I think it was a huge step forward for freedom. But at the same time, I'm, I've read that, you know, one of the most 
important books that was the first book printed was talking about witchcraft and how you need to burn witches at the stake and led to this huge, massive suppression of any religion that wasn't Roman Catholic, right? So it's like there always is a little bit of a good and bad. The people with power, with the views that they want to portray are always going to, are always going to have an advantage over the masses. And, you know, that's something that I hope we can change in the future. But unfortunately for me, it feels like today we're, we're, we're going in the wrong direction. I think, I think we are at a turning point and I think probably not 20 years, but every 30 years, um, versions of you or I are sitting here having the same conversation, you know, before, the internet really got to where it is or the World Wide web, you know, they were probably having the same conversation. And so I see what you're seeing too. And I like that you bring up the point of the pessimism where I'm hopeful from this conversation, whoever's listening, um, you know, it lets them just sit and think and digest mm-hmm. and understand um, the importance of, having all opinions um, out there on every vertical digitally or um, print because without them out there, uh, there's ultimately no way for society to suppress what they don't agree Mm. with or what they think is bad on their own terms. Totally. I love it. So Livy, with that, what, uh, what are you looking forward to in the next year? I always say life doesn't go, go according to plan. So I don't plan. (laughs) Um, I might stay here in Denver or I might move now that I'm in my upper twenties and me not being vulnerable or open. I'll throw it back to you with the new fund. Yeah. With everything, you might be moving to a different neighborhood here in Denver. Mm -hmm. What are you most excited about? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, there's a lot I'm excited about. I think, uh, our, our country and our world is at very much of an inflection point right now. And I think realistically, again, not to be pessimistic, but if I look at where we are, it's very reminiscent to me of Germany in the 1930s. Um, And so obviously, you know, we knew how that turned out, but my view is that if we learn from the mistakes of the past, we are not destined to repeat them. And I think that Times of great crisis also cause great opportunity. And so I think that if people get the willpower to come together, to take an honest look at what's happening in the world around them, to get off of Instagram and get organized and demand the future that they want for themselves and their kids, that this world can become truly beautiful beyond our imagination. I love that. And I like how you just brought up the demand thing to close our thoughts, uh, demanding what you want for the future. I say this very specifically to our generation, uh, does not mean reposting stories on Instagram, uh, to feel validated. It's going out and being passionate, uh, about whatever goal you're working towards in order to try and put your best foot forward for society and yourself and your loved ones and ultimately your country, you know, whether you hate America or not, um, America wants you to succeed. Uh, and it does us a lot of good, uh, to grow and prosper in whatever way you succeed. Absolutely. 
So I think to wrap it up, let's all grow and prosper. Woo. <laughs> Livy, thanks again. This has been such a fun conversation. Jordan, it is an honor to be on here. And if anyone else is still listening, we were shooting the shit and I was drunk and I was like, sure, I'll go on it <laughs> and I'll design some stuff for you. So here we are. Yeah. Get ready for the uh, new logo with that. I'm pretty stoked about it. All right. Well, thanks again, Libby. This is a blast. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Well-constructed public health policy should always include plans for both prevention and treatment of epidemics. For example, the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus response emphasized vaccines for prevention, while competent scientists and regulators recommended antivirals for treatment of infected patients. Similarly, Combating the alcohol and drug addiction epidemic should focus on both prevention and treatment of that addiction. The addiction epidemic. Currently, 19.7 million Americans battle a substance use disorder. Of those, 74%, or about 14.5 million, struggle with alcohol addiction, while 38%, or about 7.5 million, have an illicit drug addiction. Today, I'd like to highlight the current state of the addiction epidemic within the broader context of the 50-plus years' war on drugs. Recent promising research has indicated cannabis and psychedelics can be helpful in respectively preventing and treating those suffering from addiction. Some listeners may consider it paradoxical to suggest that substances, which many Americans view first and foremost as illegal drugs, could be helpful in reducing addiction. First, let me emphasize that some of the simplest and most efficacious ways of treating addiction likely involve taking no exogenous substances at all. These include working out, developing a, haley me- developing a daily meditation practice, getting sufficient sleep, eating healthy, and meeting with support groups and or therapists. And on the flip side, labeling people addicted to illicit drugs as criminals, throwing them in cages, and then treating them like animals certainly does not help solve the epidemic. A psychology professor, Bruce Alexander, emphasizes, addiction isn't a disease. Addiction is an adaptation. It's not you. It's the cage you live in. So by criminalizing addicts and throwing them in prison with an enforcement policy that disproportionately targets blacks and Hispanics, we have built the very conditions that will be most likely to produce and deepen addiction. In the U.S., 90% of the money spent on drug policy goes to policing and punishment with just 10% going to treatment and prevention. Of what money does go to cannabis research, the vast majority goes to, lock, goes to looking for proof it causes abuse, addiction, etc. Only 16% of federal funding for cannabis research goes to exploring therapeutic use, including as a substitute for opioids. So then it shouldn't be surprising that the U.S. now imprisons more people for drug offenses than Western European nations in prison for all crimes combined. No human society has ever imprisoned this high a proportion of its population. It is now so large that if all U.S. prisoners were detained in one place, they would rank as the 35th most populous state of the Union. Doesn't something seem off with our society when the most advanced democracy is imprisoning the highest proportion of its population in the history of human civilization? U.S. has 5% of the world's population, yet 25% of the world's prisoners. 
five times overrepresentation for people locked in cages. What is going on? The importance of dosage. In addition to fixing our asinine criminal justice system, there is also promising evidence that both cannabis and psychedelics, taken in the right dosages with the proper mindset and in the appropriate setting, can positively contribute to combating the drug and alcohol addiction epidemic. Furthermore, most people make the mistake of conflating the distinction between drug and medicine as what is illicit versus licit. In fact, for reasons which I'll get into, the list of which specific substances were determined to be illegal by President Nixon in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, or CSA, has little to do with science and everything to do with the self-serving interests of the politicians passing the law. The true line between drug and medicine has to do with dosage, the volume, frequency, and potency of substance consumption. The science of dosage, known as pathology, is a hugely important topic that too often gets forgotten in the discussion of public health. Take water as one extreme example. The human body averages 60% water, and the Mayo Clinic recommends men drink 15.5 cups per day, women 11.5 cups per day. Yet drinking exorbitant amounts of water can result in water intoxication, hyperhydration, and water toxemia. The importance of dosage and potency is crucial for understanding the development of the opioid epidemic, as is a concept in drug policy research known as the Iron Law of Prohibition. The Iron Law states that as the enforcement of the prohibited drug increases, that as the enforcement of the prohibited drugs increase, the potency of those drugs increases as well. Basic economic principles support this theory. Number one, where there is demand, there will be supply. Outlawing a substance has never curtailed the demand for said compound. Unfortunately, forcing the product onto the illicit market ensures the suppliers will generally be gangs, organized crime syndicates, cartels, secret police, terrorist groups, and others who utilize their profits for nefarious activities. Number two, the greatest cost for drug smugglers is avoidance of detection. As such, black market drug manufacturers are incentivized to produce drugs in more concentrated and powerful forms. These more potent forms are more profitable because one, they require less storage space, two, they can be sold for higher prices, and three, they weigh less in transportation. So as predicted by the Iron Law, the narcotics trade in the 20th century shifted from bulky opium to higher potency heroin following the implementation of the war on drugs. This in turn drove significantly higher risk of bloodborne disease because of injection by needle and far greater risk of death from overdose. The illicit narcotics industry then developed even more potent synthetic opioids like fentanyl and tramadol. The history of the opioid epidemic. The CDC attributes opioid overdose deaths to three distinct distinct waves which collectively resulted in 500,000 deaths from 1999 to 2019. The first wave began with increased prescribing of opioids in the 1990s with overdose deaths involving prescription opioids, natural and semi-synthetic opioids, and methadone increasing since at least 1999. The second wave began in 2010 with rapid increases in overdose deaths involving heroin. The third wave began in 2013 with significant increases in overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids particularly those involving illicitly manufactured fentanyl. 
The market for illicitly manufactured fentanyl continues to change and it can be found in combination with heroin, counterfeit pills, and cocaine. The reason prescription or illicit opioid deaths, sorry, the reason prescription or illicit opioid deaths in turn lead to more heroin and fentanyl or illicit opioid deaths has to do with the deadly combination of our government's inept public health policy and our government's inept drug prevention policy. The worst problems for users of opioids don't begin when the drugs are prescribed. They begin when the prescriptions are cut off. By law, if a doctor in the U.S. recognized a patient has developed an Oxycontin addiction, for example, by law, if a doctor in the U.S. recognizes a patient has developed an Oxycontin addiction, for example, he or she has to cut the patient off. If the doctor were to prescribe the patient additional opiates to treat the addiction the patient has developed, the doctor can be stripped of his or her license and face up to 25 years in jail as a drug dealer. So the patient, who initially received legal opiates for pain treatment, has now developed a physical addiction to opiates at the same time as his or her access to legal treatment has been cut off. Where else are they to turn besides the illicit market? This in turn leads to all the problems we associate with drug addiction, including, including criminality, prostitution, and violence. And as discussed earlier, due to the iron law of prohibition, the harder you crack down, the stronger the drugs become. This explains the vicious cycle, which leads to higher and higher rates of opioid deaths each year, despite growing awareness of the American public and regulators of their devastating impact. Misappropriate Scheduling of the Controlled Substances Act Both cannabis and psychedelics have demonstrated promise in helping reverse the opioid epidemic. Cannabis as a preventative substitute for opioids and pain treatment, and psychedelics as a treatment for those already suffering with the addiction. However, both cannabis and psychedelics were placed in the most restrictive category of the Controlled Substances Act, Schedule 1. Schedule 1 substances are defined to have a high risk of abuse and to hold no accepted medical benefits. Because of the highly restrictive Schedule 1 classification, conducting medical research on cannabis and psychedelics is exceptionally restrictive. Listeners may be surprised that they were placed in this category when there has been no lethal dosage identified of cannabis or psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin. There is an abundance of anecdotal evidence supporting the medicinal applications of both substance categories, and far more dangerous drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, and oxycodone are in the less restrictive restrictive Schedule 2 category. Here on Substack, I've taken a chart from the book Drugs in Society, U.S. Public Policy regarding the safety ratio and dependence potential of various substances. I've then highlighted where each substance sits on the CSA. The clear takeaway is that little to no consideration was placed on science or medicine when legalizing the bill, with the glaring outliers being marijuana and psychedelics. Here's an explanation by Graham Boyd, an attorney focused on drug policy and mass incarceration reform. This scheduling paradigm is meant to be based on medicine, is meant to be based on medicine, but in fact, the initial placement in those schedules for the substances long considered to be drugs of abuse, including cannabis, was done in most cases by either the Drug Enforcement Agency or Congress, and generally not based on thorough review of the science or medicine. At this point, the overwhelming majority of scientists, medicinal, medical professionals, and ordinary people agree that cannabis being in Schedule 1 does not make a lot of sense, and yet efforts to reschedule cannabis have been blocked repeatedly. 
DEO, DEA's own administrative law judge conducted a thorough review of evidence, ruled in favor of rescheduling, but was overruled, sum, sum, but was overruled summarily by the DEA administrator. After years of litigation, congressional hearings, and thorough exploration of every conceivable path, DEA's roadblocks led to activists to decide to go directly to state voters to pass the medical marijuana laws through direct ballot measure. America in 1970. To understand why there is such a discrepancy in the CSA scheduling and the actual medical impact of these substances, we have to go back to the cultural and political context of the USA at its time of passage. The 25-year period from 1945 to 1970 represented a unique turning point for global society, in the U.S. especially. The devastation of World War II led to renewed interest in world peace and equal rights, including the creation of the United Nations in 1945. Yet at the same time, the military-industrial complexes of the two remaining superpowers the U.S. and USSR, were growing in power and locking the globe in a dichotomous battle between capitalism and communism. This conflict eventually spilled into Vietnam in 1955. Yet, when the U.S. federal government initiated a draft call in 1965, for the first time ever, young men en masse responded, no. Those two decades between World War II and the Vietnam draft like the Chautauqua movement the century before, represented a renaissance of progressive ideas in America. The civil rights movement gained traction under the, under the leadership of men and women like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and Malcolm X, resulting in the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Civil Rights Act of 1968. And while these were all major milestones in the right direction, they did little to assuage the pain of losing leaders like John F. Kennedy Jr. in 1963, Malcolm X in 1965, and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy in 1968, all to assassins' bullets. We can see clearly in 2022 that the goals of equal rights and equal opportunity for all men and women, regardless of race, have yet to be achieved. The disastrous criminal justice policy of the war on drugs has been one of the most significant forces in systematizing this inequality. By the way, the core enforcement powers of the Voting Rights Act have been significantly weakened by two Supreme Court decisions over the last eight years. Back to the, back to the 50s and 60s, you know, concurrent to that civil rights movement, a breakthrough had occurred in the study of psychology and psychoanalysis. In 1950, a young Sandoz chemist named Dr. Albert Hoffman for the first time produced LSD-25. LSD is a synthetic compound developed from the fungus ergot. The psychedelic substance, also known as acid, proved promising for a wide variety of disorders at very tiny dosages. So, Sandoz decided to essentially open source the research and development program by providing free samples to any psychoanalyst or researcher looking to work with the substance. Imagine that, a pharmaceutical company more focused on therapy development than on hoarding their intellectual property for profits. Oh, how the times have changed! LSD was viewed for the next 15 years as a miracle drug with over 1,000 different scientific articles published on psychedelics. 40,000 research subjects took psychedelics and six international conferences about LSD alone were held between 1950 and 1965. 
They found the drug allowed people to open up and put down their defenses in such a way that they could deal with their addiction and their trauma. Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, attributes his decision to quit drinking and to starting AA to a spiritual experience he had on psychedelics. And starting in the early 1960s, LSD started to escape the lab. Harvard psychologist doctors Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert started to conduct experiments with LSD and psilocybin. Tensions with the Harvard faculty worsened over their research, eventually leading to Alpert's firing and Leary's resignation in protest. Richard Alpert became Ramdas, one of the leaders of the modern spirituality movement, while Leary became LSD's most outspoken evangelist. Leary wanted to change culture through LSD, to change the rigidity of people's thinking and their acceptance of the established system. I can't say I disagree with the sentiments here, but unfortunately, the execution left quite a bit to be desired. Many in the counterculture movement started experimenting with the substance in often unsafe environments at inappropriate dosages. Mix in some CIA mind control experiments like MKUltra, and the psychedelics movement started to see backlash from the American public. This in turn led President Nixon to at one point label Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America. Pretty bold coming from a man who at the time was forcibly drafting young men into the Vietnam War, wouldn't you say? By the way, during that war, 58,000 American military personnel died, as did between 200 and 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers, about 1.5 million North Vietnamese and Viet Cong fighters, and as many as 2 million civilians across South Vietnam. That means over 6% of the Vietnamese population was killed during this conflict. But who's counting, right? Meanwhile, in 1962, the world faced global catastrophe with the Cuban Missile Crisis. The U.S. and Soviets were inches away from nuclear holocaust when President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev reached an agreement narrowly avoiding nuclear war. People saw firsthand the insanity of the policy of mutual assured destruction. They came close to realizing exactly what Gandhi meant when he said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. The culmination of these factors, and many more, led to a growing progressive population that pushed for nonviolent reform and equal rights for all people, for peaceful diplomacy as a tool over military force, for freedom of thought and freedom of speech. Unfortunately for many in the establishment, this movement served as a threat. All of a sudden, soldiers for the war machine were no longer guaranteed. Minority groups who'd been suppressed were speaking out against these injustices. People wanted corporations to consider the rights of their workers and the health of the planet over just their own profits. Something had to be done. Enter the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, followed by Nixon's formal declaration of a war on drugs. As discussed, cannabis was included in the most restrictive category, Schedule 1. This was supposed to be a temporary designation until Nixon and Congress's appointed commission, the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, completed its report on effective drug policies. The report came out in 1972 and recommended legalizing the recreational use of cannabis, concluding the most notable statement that can be made about the vast majority of marijuana users experimenters, and intermittent users is they are essentially indistinguishable from their non-marijuana-using peers 
by any fundamental criterion other than their marijuana use. But Nixon said, nah. Despite the commission's recommendation to legalize recreational cannabis, Nixon overruled their guidance and left cannabis as the most restrictive Schedule I designation. Why would Nixon go against his own commission's recommendation? Nixon's chief domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, subsequently provided commentary to that end. Ehrlichman stated, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. By getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. One question Ehrlichman's confession raises, which most people are afraid to ask. If Richard Nixon and his co-conspirators knowingly lied about drugs to suppress specific communities, what other criminal activities were they willing to engage in? Is it just a coincidence that President Nixon was also the man who oversaw Operation 40, the CIA assassin squad operation initially formed to overthrow Fidel Castro in the years right before JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert F. Kennedy were assassinated? Is it such a far-fetched conspiracy theory to consider that corrupt political and intelligence agency leaders would move from stifling dissent through a jackal's bullet to the subtler method of arresting dissident leaders under trumped-up drug charges. Putting the deeper implications of that question to the side for now, the end result has been over 50 years of the global war on drugs. The year after the U.S. signed the CSA into law, the United Nations passed the Convention on Psychotropic Substances, drafted by the corrupt bureaucrat Harry Anslinger. Harry Anslinger, and this unjust drug scheduling extended to nations around the world. The addiction rate has remained steady around 1.3% since 1970, despite skyrocketing costs for policing and punishing the war on drugs of over $1.5 trillion. And in 2020, opioid deaths increased 30% year over year to over 93,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. 50 years of rhetoric and propaganda. Yet despite the abysmal performance of the war on drugs in reducing drug use, here is some of the drug rhetoric and propaganda that has followed from our elected leaders and media outlets over the ensuing decades. This is one area where we cannot have budget cuts because we must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of dangerous drugs. That was President Richard Nixon, 1972. Leading medical researchers are coming to the conclusion that marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably 
the most dangerous drug in the United States, and we haven't begun to find out all of the ill effects, but they are permanent ill effects. Ronald Reagan on the presidential campaign trail, 1980. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? This is your brain on drugs. 1980s public service announcement paid for by the Partnership for a Drug-Free America, subsequently the Partnership to End Addiction. This nonprofit was supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the same Robert Wood Johnson who founded the pharmaceutical company Johnson Johnson & Johnson. What an interesting coincidence that an organization tied to Big Pharma would propagate a deceitful anti-drug advertising campaign under the guise of addiction treatment. Drugs take away the dream from every child's heart and replace it with a nightmare. And it's time we in America stand up and replace those dreams. Each of us has to put our principles and consciences on the line, whether in social settings or in the workplace, to set forth solid standards and stick to them. There's no moral middle ground. Indifference is not an option. We want you to help us create an outspoken intolerance for drug use. For the sake of our children, I implore each of you to be unyielding and inflexible in your opposition to drugs. First Lady Nancy Reagan in 1986, pleading for an unyielding and inflexible drug policy. Because think of the children. This is the first time since taking the oath of office that I felt an issue was so important, so threatening, that it warranted talking directly with you, the American people. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Drugs have strained our faith in our system of justice. Our courts, our prisons, our legal system are stretched to the breaking point. The social costs of drugs are mounting. In short, drugs are sapping our strength as a nation. Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. Everyone who uses drugs, everyone who sells drugs, and everyone who looks the other way. President George H. W. Bush, 1989. We speak with great concern about the drug problem in America today, but we fail to appreciate or address it for what it really is, the number one threat to our national security. It affects the readiness of our army, the productivity of our workers, and the achievement of our students, and the very health and safety of our families. America is under attack, literally under attack, by an enemy who is well-financed, well-supplied, and well-armed, and fully capable of declaring total war against the nation and its people as we've seen in Colombia. The Democratic response to President Bush's anti-drug speech in 1989 from none other than the senator from Delaware, Joseph Biden. The voice changes, but the message stays the same. More money, more domestic policing, more international enforcement because of fear. National security, our children's futures, terrorism, whatever the fear point of the day, the answer is always give us more money for enforcement. Don't bother actually looking at the results to determine if our drug policy has been effective. Spoiler alert, it hasn't. 
But we know we must do more because the drug cartels will do more. After all, there's a lot of money in this. So we're already deploying new technologies, increasing the customs budget, doubling the number of border patrol agents along the southwest border. And today I'm committing another $73 million to the Defense Department's $800 million counter-narcotics budget to help support the interdiction efforts in Latin America and the Caribbean. President Bill Clinton, 1997. Mr. Buckley actually believes we ought to, I think he believes we ought to legalize marijuana. I don't. I think that'd be a big mistake. George W. Bush on the 2000 presidential campaign trail. They said I wouldn't get hooked after the first hit. They said I wouldn't get hooked after the first hit. They lied. Find out the truth about drugs. Drugfreeworld.org. 2008 public service announcement from the Foundation for a Drug-Free World. The FDFW is a nonprofit organization supported by the Church of Scientology. The organization has come under scrutiny by various Department of Educations for its inaccurate portrayal of substance abuse and health education. Another big issue in this country right now has to do with the legalization of marijuana. You gave an interview to the New Yorker's David Remnick, um, and you said that you thought smoking pot was a bad habit, but you didn't think it was any worse for a person uh, than drinking. Now that contradicts the official Obama administration policy, both on the website of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, uh, and also the fact that marijuana is considered a Schedule One narcotic along with heroin and ecstasy. Now, do you think you were maybe talking just a little too casually about it with Remnick and The New Yorker, or are you considering not making marijuana a Schedule One narcotic? Well, first of all, uh, what is and isn't a Schedule One narcotic is a, a job for Congress. It's I not, think it's the DEA it's, that it's, decides it's, it's that. Not, it's not something by ourselves that we start changing. No, there are laws under uh, uh, undergirding uh, those determinations. Would you support that move? The, uh, but, but the broader point, uh, I stand by my belief based, I think, on the scientific evidence, that uh, marijuana for casual users, individual users, is subject to abuse just like alcohol is, uh, and should be treated as a public health problem and challenge. But as I said in the interview, my concern is when you end up having very heavy criminal uh, app, uh, penalties for individual users that have been applied unevenly uh, and in some cases uh, with a racial disparity. This exchange took place between CNN reporter Jake Trapper and President Barack Obama in 2014. Here you see Obama dodging, dodging tough, legitimate questions about the ludicrousness of our drug laws. Notice how quickly he changes subjects when he's pressed on the executive branch controlled DEA and its ability to reschedule substances. When I was in China, and other places, by the way, I said, Mr. President, do you have a drug problem? No, 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 we do not. I said, huh, big country, 1.4 billion people, right? Not much of a drug problem. I said, what do you attribute that to? Well, uh, the death penalty. You're killing our kids. They're killing our kids. They're killing our kids. They're killing our families. They're killing our workers. So what do you mean no problem? We have a zero 
tolerance policy. What does that mean? That means if we catch a drug dealer, death penalty. That's it. And they don't have a problem. Now, remember this. If somebody goes and shoots somebody or kills somebody, they go away for life and they can even get the death penalty, right? One person. They shoot one person, they get the death penalty. They shoot one person, kill some person, knife one person, the person dies. They get maybe the death penalty or maybe life in prison, no parole, right? Okay? A drug dealer will kill 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 people during the course of his or her life. Here we have President Donald Trump in 2018 advocating for more of the same punishment-focused drug policy, praising China and Singapore's zero-tolerance policies, and advocating for the death penalty for drug offenses. I wish I was kidding. This week I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, because, because marijuana, marijuana, marijuana in our country is already legal for privileged people. And it's one, the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. And so let me just, let me just say this. With more African-Americans under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves since 1850 do not roll up into communities and not talk directly to issues that are going to relate to the liberation of children because there are people in Congress right now that admit to smoking marijuana while there are people, our kids are in jail right now for those drug crimes. Thank Record you, numbers. Senator Booker. Vice President Biden, you can respond to that. I'll be very brief. I think we should decriminalize marijuana, period. And I think everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out of jail. Their records expunged. It be completely zeroed out. But I do think it makes sense, based on data, that we should study what the long-term effects are for the use of marijuana. That's all it is. And finally, we have an interchange between Senator Cory Booker and our old friend Joe Biden during the 2019 presidential debate. As expected, we get a policy of gradualism and incremental change. We also get the condescending recommendation to wait for more medical research on cannabis, when as we've already established, cannabis's Schedule One classification makes it extremely difficult to conduct medical research on the substance. It's also interesting to note that President Biden didn't show near the same level of concern for long-term research on the COVID-19 vaccines as he does for cannabis. Hmm. As I hope is becoming clear, the war on drugs has never been about public health and safety. Rather, it has always been about controlling the population and using drugs as a scapegoat to subjugate and suppress dissident groups that challenged the established political system. Let's, not, let's also not forget that the same U.S. federal government, who has been inflaming drug fears through baseless propaganda, using the drug war as an excuse to criminalize and imprison huge proportions of the population, predominantly black and brown men, has concurrently profiteered from the illicit global drug trade. For example, journalist Gary Webb's 1998 book, Dark Alliance, exposed the CIA's involvement in trafficking cocaine into the U.S. 
and using those profits to fund the counter-revolution of Contra rebels in Nicaragua. The intelligence agency's connection to illicit drug profiteering is widely suspected to continue to this day, the funds from which have been siphoned off for a host of black ops projects outside of congressional or military oversight. The word you're looking for here is hypocrisy. Other acceptable answers include racketeering, corruption, and organized crime syndicate. The progress, momentum, and roadblocks. Yet despite all of this doom and gloom about the drug war, there have been positive developments over the past 50 years. As of July 2022, 38 U.S. states and D.C. have legalized medical cannabis. 19 states and D.C. have legalized recreational cannabis. Hemp and hemp-derived CBD were legalized federally with the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill. Denver, Santa Cruz, Oakland, D.C., Somerville, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Northampton, and Seattle have all decriminalized psilocybin-containing mushrooms, with Oregon set to begin legal medical sales in 2023. Oregon was also the first state to decriminalize all drugs with the passage of the 2020 Oregon Ballot Measure 110. And while the CSA severely restricts medical research on cannabis and psychedelics, we've seen promising studies for both on their potential in the addiction epidemic. Per Dr. Danielle Piamelli, there are two important studies by Bradford and Bradford, which were published in 2016 and 2017 in Health Affairs. These studies have examined how the behavior of individual physicians changed when medical cannabis laws went into effect in the states that these physicians operated in. The authors found that medical cannabis laws may be associated with the reduction in the number of prescriptions filled by Medicare and Medicaid. If you look more closely at the data, you see that there are suggestions that opioid analgesics are among the drug classes that are most affected by this decline. Dr. Rosalie Licardo Pacula added, Our recent study in the Journal of Health Economics suggested that it is not so much having any medical marijuana law that mattered that just recognizing the medicinal value of cannabis was not adequate, but it was actually the presence of having active and legally protected dispensaries that increased access to patients and had the significant impact on opioid-related mortality. It was only the persistence of open and legally protected dispensaries that mattered for reducing opioid-related mortality. Further, researchers from the University of Melbourne Arizona State University, and others have shown promising results for the use of psychedelics in treating addiction as part of the broader resurgence in the psychedelics research phenomenon. So with all of the positive traction, what's the holdup? Why aren't we moving faster towards sensible drug policy? And why do our elected leaders keep advocating the same broken strategy focused on policing and punishment? Contrary to popular belief, cannabis legalization is no longer a red-blue issue. Approximately two-thirds of Americans now support cannabis legalization, including a majority of Republicans. Enter Big Pharma, one special interest group decidedly against cannabis reform. The pharmaceutical industry spends more money on lobbying than any other industry, over $2.6 billion between 1998 and 2012. Much of this spend has been for anti-marijuana lobbying, as analysts estimate Big Pharma stands to lose $18.5 billion if medical marijuana becomes legal in all 50 states. Much of this expected loss would come from Big Pharma's cash cows, prescription opioids, and painkillers. 
for example, the Sackler family of Purdue Pharma, of Purdue Pharma notoriety, made $12 billion in profit from Oxycontin during the same time period that 300,000 people died of opioid overdoses. So when you consider that hemp and marijuana biomass can be produced at cost-effective pricing and can help patients manage pain without a commensurate lifelong addiction to the substance, well, that's just bad for business. Then we have to address the issue of pharmaceutical companies and their ability to patent intellectual property for therapies. For example, in April 2018, the drug manufacturer GW Pharmaceuticals was awarded the patent to manufacture Epidiolex, the first pharma-approved drug that included a cannabinoid, CBD. Sales of Epidiolex started in 2018, and in 2020, the, the drug generated over $510 million in revenue for GW Pharma. Epidiolex drove this fantastic amount of revenue, despite the fact that it is only approved for the treatment of rare seizures associated with three rare disorders, which affect just 50,000 people in the U.S. and 1 million worldwide. Through Q319, Epidiolex has been prescribed to approximately 15,000 people, which implied that GW Pharma was making approximately $12,500 per patient on the drug. GW was subsequently acquired by Jazz Pharmaceuticals for $7.2 billion after the success of Epidiolex. Then later in December 2018, it felt like another major win for the CBD space when the federal government passed the 2018 Farm Bill. However, over three years have passed since the Farm Bill, and the FDA has not provided any guidance for companies looking to include CBD in orally administered supplements. This lack of FDA guidance has put significant downward pressure on the development of the CBD nutraceuticals industry, as CPG companies and investors are reluctant to deploy capital into the sector until they understand what claims can be made and how to practically build a brand in the space. In the meantime, millions of patients who could benefit from the usage of CBD suffer without practical support in knowing which products are appropriate for their respective ailments. So in summary, what has the U.S. government, our regulatory bodies, and private pharmaceutical done with the CBD molecule? We took a plant that is cheap and sustainable to grow and that was used for a wide host of ailments for millennia. And in the meantime, these same gradualist politicians lined their pockets with campaign contributions from the for-profit prison and pharmaceutical industries. In 2001, Portugal took such a drastic approach and decriminalized all drugs. This is an important distinction from full legalization in which it is still not legal to sell drugs. Fully legalizing the substances would be a violation of the antiquated UN convention and could have triggered sanctions and crackdowns against Portugal. Yet even without full legalization, the policy change has worked. The Portuguese Ministry of Health says the number of drug users have literally halved from 100,000 to 50,000. The proportion of people contracting HIV who get it from drug use fell from 52% to 20%. In the years since heroin was decriminalized in Portugal, its use has been halved there, while in the U.S., where the drug war continues, it has doubled. Portugal also flipped the U.S. budget allocation, spending 90% on treatment and prevention and just 10% on policing and punishment, and it worked. There is absolutely no reason to believe a similar policy wouldn't be just as effective in the United States. For politicians who dismiss the idea out of hand and advocate for more of the same failed policing and punishment policies, one question needs to be asked. What special interest groups are funding your political campaigns? 
and how much is coming from big pharma, for-profit prisons, and the military intelligence industrial complex. Any accurate assessment of the war on drugs and its relation to the epidemic and its relation to the addiction epidemic is complicated and nuanced. I recognize that many of the ideas I presented today are contrarian, so I hope you'll consider the following six takeaways with an open mind. Number one, the problems associated with drug prohibition like criminality, corruption, and increased potency vastly outstrip the, pop- the problems caused by the underlying substances themselves. The war on drugs has been and continues to be one of the strongest forces towards institutionalizing systemic inequality, suppression, and subjugation globally. Drug addicts are human beings often in crisis. They are not animals to be thrown in cages. Similarly, most drug dealers only turn to the trade due to extreme poverty, poor education, and lack of opportunity. Any drug policy focused on policing and punishment over prevention and treatment will only perpetuate the drug and alcohol addiction epidemics in a vicious cycle. We need to reallocate our drug spending with the vast majority going to prevention and treatment instead of self-defeating policing and punishment policies. Number three, any honest analysis of the history of the war on drugs must also consider the interests of the intelligence agencies and the pharmaceutical companies. We must confront the hard truth that the interests of both are often in direct opposition to the people they're supposed to be protecting. Similarly, the regulators appointed to rein in the interests of both groups have experienced massive regulatory capture with the military intelligence industrial complex and pharmaceutical industries representing two of the most powerful lobbying groups in the world. Should we also consider the possibility that the intelligence agencies and the pharmaceutical companies are in fact different tentacles of the same underlying octopus? Number four, the public should not fall victim to the misperception that the war on drugs is over or winding down. Far from it. Even with the positive state-level momentum, our criminal justice system remains systemically biased against black and brown communities. We need to end policies like civil affid forfeiture that perpetuate the cycles of of poverty, over-policing, and mass incarceration. Number five, we need open access to medical research on all substances, regardless of which arbitrary classification they were thrown into with the Controlled Substances Act. Research should be funded into the beneficial therapeutic uses of cannabis and psychedelics instead of the research today focused on demonizing these substances and perpetuating their stigma. The majority of this abuse-focused research funding comes from pharmaceutical companies and their self-serving interests to maintain their regulatory oligopoly on disease prevention and treatment. And number six, following the passage of the CSA in 1970 out of politicians' self-serving interests, We've had five decades of leaders who either amplify the failed war on drugs policy or who make, at best, incremental changes while failing to solve the underlying problem. It's time we make radical change, starting with the repeal of the Controlled Substances Act and the United Nations Convention on Psychotropic Substances. We must also ensure that the intellectual property for naturally occurring cannabinoids and psychedelic compounds are made widely available for patient use not hoarded by pharmaceutical companies. And so while Nixon and the forces of subjugation may have dominated the conversation about drugs for the past 50 plus years, the story is far from over. I believe we're currently at a turning point in the movement for the free exploration of conscious thought 
the right to dominion over the self, and the pursuit of efficacious healthcare. Therefore, I'd like to give the last word of the day to Timothy Leary. Mr. Leary, where do you think we go from here? And I want to say right at the beginning that the LSD boom is just beginning. A few schools loose in the head, I'm a psycho Promise you the bar, just as real as the bite though Misunderstood, you could call me a typo I, I shine hotter than the stars in the night though Hate the who's who's, don't give me a title Flipping in that set, so I don't worry the price though Got scratched like mine, no, leave it to the tribal I, I ain't trying to try though I could do this with my eyes closed If I got nothing on my goals My girl ain't plastic, she don't even recycle All these kids just wanna be idols All these kids just wanna be rival I'm like a bomb in the room, blow up the spot, everybody gotta move, life or death, everybody gotta choose, life or death, not everybody gotta lose, I hear the talking, I just keep was a little man, I turned into a giant. I changed the climate, every room that I'm in. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the baddest son of them all? Popping like a batterer. Bouncing like a basketball. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the baddest son of them all? Popping like a We like to, we like to, we like to go. We like to, we like to, we like to go.